Encountering challenges, making decisions, confronting struggles, and better understanding the reasons for polarizing positions are but a part of being engaged in our nation's ability to discuss and advance towards a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. El Desvio presents listeners with 30 minutes of provoking discussions on relevant issues we face as a nation. Buenos dias, mi gente, and welcome back to El Desvio. I'm your host, Pablo Stein, and joining me today is guest host, Carla Pineda. Carla, welcome to El Desvio. Thanks, Pablo. Great to be here. We hope you enjoyed the kickoff to our second season with that great conversation we had about our victory on banning corpiricos. Today we're here to talk about another very important issue for nuestra comunidad, the Latina pay gap. And if you're a LACLA member or ally who follows us on social media or email communications, we hope by now that you know October 21st was Latina Equal Pay Day. And October 21st is the day we observe Latina Equal Pay Day because it represents the amount of time this year that the average Latina would have to work to to catch up to what her white, non-Hispanic male counterpart earned in 2020 alone, which is a pretty striking fact right there. In other words, the average Latina has to work 22 months to earn what the average white man earns in 12 months. That really is an astonishing statistic, Pablo. And another way we can look at it that a Latina has to earn only 57 cents to the dollar compared to a white non-Hispanic man. As trade unionists como Latinas y Latinos, this is totalmente inaceptable. This is really unacceptable. Absolutely. And that's why LACLA's focus this year for Latina Equal Pay Day was a theme we call Beyond the Gap. Because we know that Latina, the Latina pay gap is caused partially by direct discrimination, but there are also a lot of structural inequalities behind this gap. And for the first part of our show, we'll be focusing on one in particular, which is the lack of access to affordable childcare, which impacts huge numbers of Latina workers across the country. And here to talk about this issue with us today is a very special guest, one of our own Trabajadores Fellows, Casey Munoz. Welcome, Casey. The Trabajadores Fellowship is an ongoing LACLA program that brings in a cohort of Latina workers and students each year to learn about workplace issues that impact Latina, including the PEGA. It also aims to teach participants how to go back into their communities and workplaces and fight for a more just workplace for Latinas. So, Casey, welcome to the show. And why don't we start uh, with telling us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? And how has your experience been as a Trabajadoras Fellow? Hey, Carla. Hi, Pablo. So happy to be here. Um, So I grew up on the border of Mexico in El Paso, Texas, and I now live in Brooklyn, where I work for a small consulting firm. Um, We focus on building public trust in government services, especially for marginalized groups. And I am so, so happy to have been part of the Trabajadores Fellowship this year. Um, I actually found out about it through Instagram because a couple of years back, I had been sharing some posts on social media about the pay gap and how it is particularly wide for Latinas. Um, I will say that I have learned so much um, since starting the fellowship, and I'm so grateful for all of the women that I've met in this program. That's awesome, Casey. We're so glad that you're here with us. Um, And I understand that as part of the fellowship, you've been researching the pay gap, particularly as it relates to childcare access, as we mentioned earlier. 
which is such an important intersection of challenges for Latinas. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, these two challenges, the pay gap and childcare, and how they intersect? Absolutely. So usually when problems with childcare arise, parents, most of the time mothers, are usually scrambling to find alternative options for care. Um, they may end up missing work because they have to care for their children themselves. And I think, especially after the pandemic, there's been an increase in awareness um, in this link between access to childcare, employment, as well as economic growth. So what ends up happening is women, especially Black and Brown women of color, end up bearing the impact um, by working fewer hours, taking a pay cut, or like I said, having to leave their jobs altogether. Black and Hispanic families are more likely to live in childcare deserts with even fewer options. So for those who do have um, opportunity to have, you know, childcare, it's very expensive. Um, so the Treasury Department reported last month that the average cost of care is roughly $10,000 a year per child, and that consumes about 13% of families' income, which is nearly twice what the government considers affordable. So for those families who can't afford to take pay cuts, who don't have family members living nearby and don't have any other option, are forced to pay to keep their children alive and safe. Well, Casey, I completely understand as a mother of two children, I am very thankful that I was one of those uh, women that had family nearby that could help. But, um, you know, we, we know how important this issue is for, for us, for working mothers. Um, I also learned that this is a very important issue for you. And it personally impacted you growing up. Um, so you can you tell us a little bit about your experience and how you and your mother um, had to deal with one of with this challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So my mother had me at a pretty young age. Um, so I luckily got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents. So I'm very close with now. Um, I was visiting home recently, and we were driving past a daycare center um, where my Nana pointed out that I had been under their care for about a month. Um, before the, they noticed that the daycare center was extremely understaffed. Um, I was a pretty quiet child growing up. And so I, you know, spent most of my time alone and my Nana, you know, kind of noticed that they were ignoring me. Um, she really didn't like that. And so she went into work, uh, literally a week later and requested a 12 hour work week, which effectively cut her schedule in half. Um, she was a nurse at the time. And so following that, she would take care of me four days out of the week. My grandpa would take Fridays and then my parents would take me on the weekends. So it took a total of four people to look after just me. Didn't have my sister at the time. Um, and I just didn't realize, you know, all the sacrifices that were made. But I've always known how lucky I was to have grown up so close to my grandparents. Wow, Casey, thank you uh, for sharing that experience. It's it's fantastic, like you say, that you were able to have that. But it is also unfortunate that in our society, it should have to take such a huge effort um, on the part of a family um, to get that child care and support, which unfortunately not everyone has the privilege of uh, being able to access. So. Thank you so much for highlighting this important issue and for, uh, for being on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This past Latina Equal Pay Day, we had the pleasure of inviting some inspiring Latina activists to talk about other factors that contribute to the pay gap. For the second half of our show, we'll be listening to Andrea Delgado of the UFW Foundation interviewing Iracema Garza, who recently republished a report in collaboration with the American Association of University Women 
on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Latino women. Tita Sema, it's such a pleasure to be with you today, sharing space with you. It's been many years since our, our time together at the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, so let me just share how great it is to be in your presence and learning from you and sharing uh, great findings of a report that you've worked on. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to see you and to work again together once again, right after so many years. Um, so I'm very, very happy and honored to be here. And thank you for asking about my report. Um, I, I authored, I was the lead author for a report on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Latinas. And I worked with the American Association of University women um, on, on this particular report. And I thought it was an important um, report in to work on given the impact that I saw happening to Latinas. Um, we were discussing uh, the other day how uh, by April of 2020, Latinas had lost 20% of their employment. And um, so one of the things that I wanted to do, though, was to give voice to Latinas. So I didn't want it to just be a numbers report, right? Mm -hmm. So what I did is I interviewed, interviewed uh, 41 wow. Latinas from a number of states throughout, um, throughout the country and, what, and to tell the, give them an opportunity to tell us what was their experience uh, with COVID-19 and how it had affected their families. As you can understand, it was, it was heart-wrenching. It was absolutely uh, an experience. I, I, I loved it in that I was, had the opportunity to listen to them, but at the same time, it was, it was really very, very heartbreaking, particularly for our undocumented sisters. Because you're not just looking at this from an academic standpoint. I mean, you're, you're a distinguished scholar. You've been a trailblazing Latina labor leader. Before you get deeper into the details of this report, tell me a little bit about what compelled you to do this. Like you have a, had a long trajectory. What brought you to working on these issues in the first place? Well, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about, Andrea, for a long time is how our community continues to grow and how invisible we are to the centers of power, right? And so ultimately with this report, I wanted the public to hear Latinas in their own voices and to hear about what's going on in our community. Um, you know, I often say that when there's a policy debate on the Hill, uh, we're lucky Latinas are a footnote in that debate. Uh, we are completely absent from the media. I look at the media sometimes in disbelief, right? Um, at even during Hispanic Heritage Month, there's very little being said about, you know, Latinos or Latinas. Um, I think we're invisible in many ways to our representatives. And not just the public in general, because while there's some coverage of Latino community, we want to make sure that Latinas are not getting... Well, not only that, Latinas, absolutely. But in general, we have very, very little coverage. Look... Let's take El Paso. Do you remember El Paso, the massacre of El Paso based on what? Based on hate for Latinos, right? How many times do you ever hear it when, it, when gun control is being discussed? Rarely. So if that's the case in a place like that, imagine about Latinas, menos. Nunca, nada, 
right? And we're these invisible and, and silent sort of, you know, constituency that on the other hand continues to grow, mm -hmm. uh, you know, continues to, to contribute to this economy that is becoming more and more interconnected with the economic success of this country and nobody is sort of really paying attention. So the picture you're really trying to paint for us here is just the contrast that we're a growing and robust community, but at the same time, the irony is that we're lacking in representation, not just in the media, but in sectors across the country, in positions of power, in the policymaking debates, and in some of the benefits that you found are so critical to the economic security of Latinas. And, and to the economic security of this country to be able to compete in the future, they need us, basically, right? So absolutely all those, those things are, are, are correct. And, and the reason that I think we can contribute $1.98 trillion to the U.S. economy in 2019 as Latinos, right? You know, an amount twice as big as the GDP, the gross domestic product of, of Mexico, that Latinas control about at least 50% about where those dollars are being, are being spent that we continue to grow as a community and as a political um, powerhouse, if you will, and yet at the same time, we're invisible. We have high numbers of poverty, we have discrimination at all levels, and, um, and that there's gotta be a way that we use our political and economic muscle to address some of these things. And the way that I think we start doing that is that we need to start teaching those in power like who we are and why they should care. And this was one way that I wanted them to hear what a mom with three kids and you know cleaning houses and then COVID hit and being hungry and not being able to figure out where they're going to, you know, how they're gonna feed their children and not eligible for anything because even though she's lived in this country 25 years and paid taxes, she's undocumented. So all the ills, you know, that's one thing that COVID did, Andrea, that I think, you know, it was like pulling back a curtain mm. and just showing the country sort of the economic challenges that our Latinas have. Who's most economically vulnerable. Exactly. So relevant to the report, Amida um, Sema, tell me a little bit about how does access to education impact the page, the pay gap? And what challenges do Latinas have in accessing education? Because ultimately, there's a connection between the educational opportunities that they have and the kind of jobs and gainful employment that they're able to get. Without a doubt. You know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics consistently reports that there is a correlation between um, income, wages, mm -hmm. earned wages or uh, earnings, low unemployment, mm -hmm in higher levels of education. So in other words, the more education you have, the less likely you're going to be um, unemployed and you're gonna earn higher wages. So we could do an example, for, ex for example, a teacher, right? She's gonna earn more than let's say a senora that's doing like, you know, service industry mm -hmm. type, of, type of work. And we're overrepresented in the service industry. And we're so overrepresented as my report indicated. We're actually segregated there. Like there are such structural problems within our labor, um, you know, sector that, that sort of perpetuates that and keeps 
Latinas and women of color in those mm -hmm. sorts of jobs that are, you know, low income, like low wage or, or minimum wage if you're lucky, mm -hmm. uh, you know, informal economy, no benefits, all those sorts of things. Absolutely. Fantastic. Now, when we peel back some of that, what policies do we as an organization need to be advocating for if we want to be able to tackle some of the underlying causes that are leading to this pay gap? You know, so one of the things that um, that uh, you asked me was about like like education, but one of the things that I, I wanted to just say for the record is that one of the challenges that we have, and we cannot dismiss this because there's no other way to account for it, is continued you know discrimination in the labor market. Why? Because there's indications that even Latinas with advanced degrees oftentimes earn less than a white male. With the with same a, level of education. No, with a bachelor's degree. So even if you have an advanced degree, your chances are as a Latina is that you're right. still earning less. And so how do you account for that, right? So, you know, there's... And how do you account for that when oftentimes there isn't transparency or disclosure in the workplace about exactly how much you're making? Exactly, how much you earn or anything like that. It's, it's, it's been an issue that the Labor Department's been fighting um, about for, for a while, and they wanted to start with the federal contractors, right? But that is, you know, we have to, we have to you know, make sure that we understand that even when you're educated, there's still some, some, an issue there. Here's another thing that I think that as Latinos, we often don't think about as, as challenges to this, but you don't, there is a large uh, percentage of Latino families that don't have access to technology. Mm. They can't afford broadband connection or computers. So you hear these stories of little kids or, you know, a young Latina in high school doing homework at McDonald's mm. Out of her, out of her phone, because they don't have Wi-Fi where they live. And that's the uh, story of many children, and even it's even worse in rural areas. Exactly, where broadband is limited. So, so how do how I mean, how is that a, mm -hmm. an even playing field? I mean, you know, we already start in in a society where everything's gone to a technology, you know, platform. But you know, back to your other questions. There's so many things and so many problems that we that we have. Um, but, you know, come on, let's raise the minimum wage, for God's sakes. You know, like to $15, some, some states are doing it, others aren't. Why? Because women and women of color are the ones that are more likely to be working for, for minimum wage. Here's another thing, Andrea, that just gets me every time I read about this, and that is the, the tip wages. $2.35 an hour. So if you're a waitress working in a restaurant, that is what the owner of the restaurant's gonna pay you. And you're supposed to make the difference mm -hmm. for minimum wage just on tips alone. On tips. And if you have people that don't give you tips, like how do you plan to feed your three children exactly. on that? It is it is it, it's something uh that we need to get rid of. There's a lot of states, including California, um, that re recently um you know, got that. Here's another thing that I think we could do to help Latinas, and one is um, access to training in non-traditional jobs, right? Tell me a little bit about that. What kind so of jobs are we talking non about? Non-traditional jobs, I mean, I'm talking about jobs that pay a lot of money and that usually women don't get access to. And I'm talking about plumbers, electricians, um, 
you know, construction workers. Building trades. Mm -hmm. um, building trades, all of those things, you know, if we could, you know, we don't need four-year degrees to be able to, to better the lives of Latinas. Give them a chance, give them access to those training programs and then, you know, access to, to some of those jobs. Sometimes plumbers make $100,000 a year. Right. So and if they're fortunate, a lot of those jobs in those industries are represented by a union. So they're likely absolutely. to be enjoying wages. So that's the other thing that I was going to, you know, some of the structural things that that we have besides this systemic, you know, labor uh, uh, market, gender and ethnic discrimination um, is that we have very weak labor standards. OK, so let's say farm worker women right, that are out there. There is a lot of wage theft. There's sexual Absolutely. harassment, particularly undocumented, like women, et cetera. But the wage in our department at the, uh, at the U.S. Department of Labor only has funds to do a very small amount of investigations. Oh, yes. And so it is a real problem, right, because they, they just don't. And so all of that goes... goes um, you know, un, unremedied, if you will. So we, we need to strengthen our labor standards and we need to also, our laws need to change so that workers have the right to organize. We've been, you know, everything has conspired to erode labor unions. Absolutely. Right? Um, from, you know, laws to the courts to the NLRB, you know, all of these things have made it almost impossible at times for workers to be able to unionize. And we know that when workers unionize, they earn more. They have more protections. They have benefits. They, they can speak out in the workplace. I mean, you're, you're getting at such a critical exactly. and structural and fundamental barrier that a lot of workers are facing, at least for farm workers. You know, they were excluded nearly 80 years ago from the right to organize. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so all of that needs to like up, update it for the 21st century, if you will, because the people that are doing that job are us and us are growing a whole lot. Right. And we're going to be performing uh, larger and larger um, jobs in sectors, uh, sectors of the economy. So, look, just in, to wrap this up, we talk about the wage gap because what we're talking about essentially is economic security for women, right? And we have the Fair Pay Act and we have the Paycheck Fairness Act and all these laws that we've been trying to pass and nada cambia, right? There's in Title fact, seven of the Civil Rights oh Act, my God, there's, limited. Si, pero nada cambia. Mm -hmm. So if you look at what women were earning when Lockwood published this report as to like right now, we're earning actually, Latinas are earning less. Like, you know, then way back 10, 10 years ago, something is 60 very... 60 cents to the dollar to, to now between 55 and 57 or something. Cents. But the reality is, why do we want parity? Because we want economic security. So what do we need? We need to come up with a framework that gives Latinas um, on the job access to economic family benefits, paid leave, paid uh, family medical leave insurance, um, you know... Uh, access to child care, mm -hmm. um, better health care. Latinas are the group that has the least amount of um, health insurance. No, health insurance coverage. Oh. We have the least amount of, of, of uh, health insurance coverage. 
So, yes. And that impacts an entire family because if you have children. Absolutely. Higher poverty levels, you know, all of those things that could actually make her life much better, including, you know, wage parity, um, are lacking in our society. And when we started this, you asked me, why am I doing this? Because of all those reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not only illegal, it's, it's immoral, but it's also very ignorant of a country that more and more will depend on Latina labor to be competitive around the world. Irasema, thank you so much. My pleasure. We're talking about 30 million Latinas and growing. in the United States and growing and how ensuring that we're closing the pay gap is fundamental to the economic security, not just of Latinas and their families, but to the nation as a whole. And I, for one, I know that I would not have been able to even go to college had my mom not had been able to have the right to overtime pay. So the empowering Latinas, paying them for what they deserve is good for Latinas, is good for the families, is good for the country as a whole. And we're hopeful that with this research that you shed light on, it's only going to raise more awareness and the political impetus to do something and be able to deliver these changes in our loss and benefits Latinas deserve. So AUW.org Latina Initiative, and I came up with very substantive policy um, policy recommendations for, for the Congress and about how we need economic security for Latinas in this country and why. Thanks so much, Andrea Nirasema, for that great conversation. And thank you, Casey, for joining us earlier in the show to share your personal experiences with us. Con eso, mi gente, we'd like to thank you for joining us for another episode of El Desvío and remind you that we're a proud member of the Radio, Labor, and Podcast Network. If you'd like to discover other shows about working class issues, go to radiolabornetwork.org. Muchas gracias y hasta la próxima.